Good evening. It's good to see you all here tonight. Thank you for coming. One of the central tenets of Scripture is the role and the persona, the person of Christ. And as we look at Scripture, we see that not only in the New Testament, but also through the Old Testament, um, that Christ was a central figure. The Old Testament was looking forward to Christ, his, to his coming, to his message. Um, the New Testament was a realization of that message. And today we're called um, to look back on his message and to follow him and to hear him. So what I'd like to do today, tonight, for a few minutes, um, is talk about Christ. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If you'll turn over to number uh, to Acts uh, chapter 8 and verse 35. Acts chapter 8 and verse 35. One of the things that I'd like to do is just, um, for those of you who know me, know this all too well, is play on computers. Um, and one of the things that uh, I like to do is build visualizations, ways that you can uh, tell stories with data without actually using numbers and figures but using some kind of visual artifacts. And one of the things that I um, play around with is mapping the, the uh, relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament visually. Um, and one of those ways is to have a table that lists um, the Old Testament reference and the New Testament uh, that uh, corresponds to it. Whether it's a direct quotation in the New Testament of the Old Testament scripture, or whether it's a, a reference to it, or a possible allusion um, to that passage in the Old Testament. There are almost a thousand times in the New Testament where we find that the Old Testament is referenced in some way of various um, quotations or references or allusions um, of Old Testament passages. And it's important to remember that the people in the New Testament were Jews. And for them, the Jews, um, the, the scripture was the Old Testament, what we now call the Old Testament. And it's the word of God that was given to man and the Jews were called to live by it and to follow it. And that was the context within which Christ came and he spoke and he, his message was given. But we see that even almost 100 times passages in Genesis are referred to in the New Testament. 147 times Psalms passages are either are referred to or quoted in the New Testament. And almost 200 times are passages from Isaiah quoted in the New Testament. Um, and that's just a few of the books, um, almost a thousand times it's referenced, uh, Old Testament passages are referenced in the New Testament. So it clearly has a message for us. The New Testament writers would have been very familiar with it and frequently quoted as we saw. Um, but what does that mean for us today? So in fact, Christ himself realized and recognized the importance of scripture in the message that he was proclaiming. In Acts chapter 8, and let's take a look at um, starting with... Uh, verse 32. And the, the context here is the Ethiopian eunuch um, is riding his chariot. Um, and as he's going along, um, Philip was called by the Spirit, we see earlier in the, in the chapter, was called by the Spirit to go up to the, to the chariot. And Philip did so. And as he did so, he noticed that the eunuch was reading. And so the Philip said to the eunuch, uh, what are you reading? And um, it turns out that he was reading Isaiah. And in 32, we read, now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was a lamb as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb dead, uh, as a lamb before its hearers, shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed 
from the earth. And without the context, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading this passage and was confused. I wasn't sure exactly what it meant. So, in fact, the eunuch answered um, Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? And in verse 35, we see that Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So we see that here in Isaiah, the passage that's quoted, is referring directly to Jesus. And Philip uses that fact to start preaching the message. And from this scripture and other scriptures in the Old Testament, um, we see that Christ is preached. Well, let's turn over to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. I should have said this at the beginning, but I encourage you all to, to take notes of the passages. Um, and if there are any questions or anything that I say that, uh, that you don't think is correct, please let me know. Um, we always want to make sure that we're preaching from the word. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. So here we see that it's referring back to the promise that was made to Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing, and again when it says the scripture, it's speaking of the Old Testament, of what we call today the Old Testament. Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Now who is the you in that passage? Well, that was Abraham. But let's keep reading a little bit further and see. And then in verse 9 we read, And so then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so we see that the reference here is to the promise that was made to Abraham, that all of the nations would be blessed. And yet, that blessing wasn't completed in Abraham, but it was in fact completed in Christ Jesus himself. As it says here, that in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So we see that that blessing that was made to Abraham was fulfilled by Christ. But that's not what Christ himself says. That's what Paul says by inspiration. But does Christ himself refer to his completion of prophecies in the Old Testament? Let's turn over to Luke chapter 4. Let's start at verse 16. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. And it said, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, 
Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Christ himself, in fact, asserts that the passages in Isaiah are referring to him as the completion of that promise, as the fulfillment of that prophecy. But many of us are, are unfamiliar with the Old Testament. Um, it's a very foreign book to us. It's written in a different language. It's written at a different time. And the customs and the people that it was written by and written to are very different and quite foreign to us, even more than the New Testament. Um, and there are many reasons that we might unsatisfactorily give um, to the reasons that we don't preach from the Old Testament more frequently. Um, but I think we need to be more diligent in understanding the theme that Christ runs through the Old Testament. Um, and in some of the passages we'll look at tonight, um, we'll see how Christ is in fact the thread that connects the Old Testament with the New. And in fact, from the New to us today. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 5 and starting in verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. So what we're starting with is we're starting at looking at Jesus yesterday. And as we've seen the prophecies that have been mentioned before that were pointing to Jesus from Isaiah and other passages, this is one clear connection um, that the writer of Romans makes um, between Christ and Adam. Starting in verse 12, therefore, just as though, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigneth in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the key that I want to focus in on this passage is that he calls in verse 14 Adam as a type of Christ, as a foreshadowing of Christ, as an anticipation of Christ. And in fact, he draws the direct connection between the death that Adam introduced into the world and the life that Christ has brought to the world. And that salvation through grace that Christ has bought, brought is the response or the answer to the death that came through Adam, through his sin, and through the fall of man. 
So the grace that comes from Christ is the, res is the result, is the end result um, that we see coming from Adam's fall. And the necessary result for us uh, in order to have hope of eternal salvation through his grace. So that's Adam as a type of Christ. Adam looking forward to Christ. Adam fell, resulting in our need for salvation, in our need for a way to become reconnected to God. And the grace that God has shown us is that means that we have through his son's sacrifice. But that's looking backwards. Let's start looking at what our hope is today. What do we have to look forward to? Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be there for a few minutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of the first importance that I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Remember that when he mentions scriptures here, it's not in the sense that we have of today of scriptures being the Old and the New Testaments together. When the New Testament speaks of scriptures, it's speaking of the Old Testament, of what we call Old Testament today. It's speaking of the, the inspired words that were available to them um, at that point. And in fact, the scriptures, as we've seen in Isaiah and other locations, point forward and for, uh, foreshadow Christ's uh, coming and his death and his resurrection. Continuing in verse 4. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So we see that, in fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, um, we have a look, looking forward of the Redeemer's um, resurrection and the hope that we have through that um, and in fact, those are, in fact, the scriptures that are being alluded to in this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's look down then at verse 20. Verse 20, 20 through 28. But now Christ has been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who are asleep. One side note is when we read first fruits, it's easy for us to skim over that and think we um, understand that that's just the first of what we collect. But there are several important ideas in that. First off, the Jews would have been giving of their first fruits the best, the very best, um, perfection, blemish, without blemish. And yet there's also implicit in that a fact that there's a remainder that, can, that is still available um, for use and for, for, um, for the family that was making that first fruits gift. But there's also the implicit promise from God that there is a harvest and that that harvest is available from which the first fruits would be given. And so when we read first fruits in, the, in Scripture, keep in mind that all of those ideas are included in that one. It's not simply the first and the best, but it implicitly involves the idea that God is promising us um, a harvest. But what is that harvest that we have to look forward to? It says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. As we've seen before, Adam was the introduction of sin, um, of death, of spiritual death to, to mankind. In fact, a physical death as well. And in fact, in verse 22, the connection's made directly. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. But each to his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after, after that those who were Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, and when his hands, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says he, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted. Who put all things in subjection to him? When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So when we read that, we can get a little twisted and a little confused in the words. But what he's saying here is that Jesus Christ has authority, has all authority given to him by God, and everything has been subjected to him. But where does that promise come from? Where do we see that? If we look at verse 25, for he must reign until he put, has put all his enemies under his feet. That's a direct quotation from Psalm 110 in verse 1. Psalm 110 in verse 1 is one of the two main psalms that have look forward to Christ. Um, and in Psalm 110 in verse 1, it's directly quoted here in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 15. So we're looking forward to Christ's coming, to his um, having all power and all authority. In Hebrews 2 and verses 5 through 9 and Matthew 22 verse 44, both quote from the same psalm looking forward to Christ's authority. They're also alluded to by Revelations and Hebrews passages as well. But in verse 27 of chapter 15, it's a direct quotation again from Psalms, but this time from Psalm 8, which is the other psalm that looks forward to Christ. He has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things, does it mean all things except for God who gave him that authority? And that's the exception that he mentions here in verse 28. He accepted God from all things, but everything else except for God has been put under Jesus' authority. But when we look at Jesus' authority, what is his authority over? And the passage that we see that he's mentioning here is it's his authority over death. And death is now the one thing that has been added to his authority um, that was no longer, not earlier, under control. And death himself, in fact, reigned until Christ came and gave us that eternal life. And the eternal life that he comes is the additional um, authority that Christ has, now has authority over death. And in fact, it's that resurrection that we have um, that re recalls and looks forward to the resurrection that we have ourselves in Christ, who was the first fruits. If we turn over now in the same chapter, but verse 42. In verse 42, we'll see a connection between the resurrection and the honor and the dishonor of the physical and the spiritual. Verses 42 through 50. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So we say, see in, verse, in these verses that we have to look forward to a spiritual life. A spiritual resurrection, not like the physical that we have today, 
but an imperishable, a glorious body, unlike the earthy one that we have today. And so when we look at verse 45, it makes, again, the direct connection between the hope that we have in Jesus Christ contrasts that with the, the death of Adam. And yet the death of Adam is contrasted here implicitly because he says here he became a life, um, sorry, it says here he became a living soul. The first Adam was, became a living soul because of Christ breathing into his body, uh, because of God breathing into his body. God was the author of his life. God gave Adam the life breath that gave him animation, that brought him to life, that made him a living soul. And yet the contrast that we see is that Adam was also the author of the death that all men experienced until Christ came. So as God gave him, Adam, the life, Adam took that away of his own accord and lost that and became death for all of us. And yet we see that first contrast is here. It's not a direct quotation in verse 45. The quotation itself would be the first man became, the, sorry, it would be the man became a living soul. Paul has added both the word first and reiterated the word man, which is in Hebrew the same word, Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for man. So in Genesis we see it says God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living soul. And it says here he adds the first man, and he says Adam by name. Why would he change that? Why would he change the Genesis um, passage? So that's from Genesis 2 and verse 7. He changes it to draw contrast between the first man, who was Adam, who was given the gift of life but chose to lose it, with the last Adam. And the last Adam, he says here, became a life-giving spirit. That same life that was breathed into Adam is also available for us through Christ. Christ is now the one giving us that same breath for spiritual life. So just as Adam was the first one to get life, Christ is the first one to give life. And he's also called the last Adam as the life-giving spirit. So as Christ is the one who is now able to give us that life that Adam had sacrificed, had given up before. So that's where we are today. All authority has been given to Christ. Christ is now the last Adam who's come and as the first fruits has given us the hope of eternal life through his sacrifice, through his life, the life-giving spirit that he's given to us through the grace of God. But what does that mean for us looking forward? What do we have to look forward to? Well, let's turn over to Revelation chapter 6. We'll start in Revelation chapter 6. And let's recall briefly that Christ was given all authority. And in fact, that now includes authority over death. And all things have been in, put in subjection to Christ, except for God. Um, and then once Christ's authority is complete, even that authority will be given back to God. But let's see how that it plays out in Revelation chapter 6. We'll start in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. And the passage here is the seals are being opened. And with each seal is a, um, a horrible experience for those who are remaining, for those who are um, on the earth. And the sixth seal is open in this section. When it's open in verse 12... The result is in verse 15 and 16. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders of the rich and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So they're not looking for repentance. They're looking for mercy. They're looking for, for grace to escape the judgment that God is going to bring through his son. And the wrath of the lamb that's promised to him is what they are hiding from in this passage. It alludes here very clearly to, to uh, Psalm chapter 110, verse 15. And in this passage, we see that um, if you uh, make note and take a look at Psalm 110 and verse 15, you'll see, uh, sorry, verse 1, verse 5 in Psalm 110. But let's turn over a couple of chapters to chapter 19. And again, what we're looking at is the authority that Christ has been given. Um, in fact, we see that the, those who are unrepentant are turning away, are fleeing, looking for uh, shelter from his wrath, from his judgment. And starting in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and a beautiful, behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And so we see here that the judgment of Christ um, is in being executed. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dripped, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robes and on his thigh he has a name written, King of King, Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And so we see here that the passage says that the, the world is arrayed against Christ and against him and his legions. And yet we see that even within the next two verses, that the victory of Christ is final and is certain. And ultimately in chapter 20, chapter 20 um, Satan is bound and ultimately defeated. And in chapter 21, the final victory will come, a new heaven and a new earth. And so the promise that we have that all authority and all power has been given to Christ is finally executed in the end times. And that's what we have to look forward to tomorrow. Whenever we pass, whenever Christ comes again, we have that to look forward to, the promise that he's made to us, that his grace and the grace of his Father will give us that opportunity for eternal life. That resurrection that we have to look forward to, the, from the physical to the spiritual, we have that because Christ came and because he has the authority now over death and he's given us that life-giving spirit um, from his Father. And ultimately, he will be the judge um, over all of those who are saved as well as those who are lost. He will ultimately be victorious over the powers of evil. And that victory we have to look forward to. It's been prophesied as his coming was 
as his death was, his resurrection was, and ultimately his authority that he has today, we see not only from the New Testament, but also promised from the Old Testament. So I would encourage you to take a look at these passages. Um, Psalm 110 and Psalm chapter 8 are two passages that very clearly foreshadow Christ's coming. They speak to him and to his appearing and to his role. I encourage you to take a look at that and consider that Christ is the thread that runs from the Old Testament through the New Testament and ultimately should guide our life and our hope today. So for all of those of you who are here, if you haven't put on Christ in baptism, this is an, an excellent time to do so, to confess your sins, to put them on, to wash away your sins because of the grace that has been given to us. Um, if you've already put him on and, and need the prayers of those um, around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, to help you, um, we are here to support you in any way we can. Won't you make your need known as together we stand and sing.